Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. This next story has been making headlines across the country because it's really scary for homeowners. Is it possible for somebody to steal your identity and then sell your home and pocket the money? There have been many cases of this reported in the Southern Ontario region, actually. Uh, Something like 30 claims of home title fraud. Now, there have been a couple here in BC, too. So is it possible that we all need to be on guard for something like this? Well, joining us now is Brian King, the president and CEO of King International Advisory Group. Brian, thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for having me on. I understand you're an insurance investigator, so you work in this area? Yes, I, I work um, um, almost exclusively right now in the um, area of, uh, of of what we're talking about here, the total title transfer frauds and mortgage fraud, as we describe it. Okay, so how big of a problem is this? Like, what have you seen going on out there? Well, I, I think what happened is, is we we had the perfect storm. Years ago, we had um, these people impersonating um, and um, um, transferring title on properties, but primarily commercial-related properties. Um, but uh, we had what I call the perfect storm here. Uh, prices of uh, real estate escalated um, in the in the greater Toronto area, um, leaving a, a substantial amount of equity in the homes. And um, and then we had uh, COVID hit with virtual signings where lawyers weren't meeting with the homeowners in person. So it just allowed um, um, these organized crime groups to to um, infiltrate um, the system. And, uh, and now we've got almost a mini epidemic of this thing happening here. So how does this work? Is it similar when it when it does happen? Very similar. It started with um, mostly P, mostly the, uh, uh, the the fraud groups putting um, mortgages on people's properties and and taking the funds. What they do is they they don't target the individual; they target the homes. So they'll do a lot of research ahead of time and um, establish whether a, a home is either free and clear or has a very low. Uh, mortgage with high equity in the home. So then they target the home. So once they have that, they, they do all kinds of um, uh, various research, um, get the identity of the owners, and then actually produce real-looking ID, ID that, that fools lawyers that are involved in the transaction. So they'll create a driver's license, passport, um, um, you know, uh, different types of um, identification. And once they have it, they basically become you. So they can open a bank account um, um, under that name once they have the ID. And, and that's what they do is they transfer the funds once the home is sold into a bank account that is actually in the name of the homeowner. And then they move it out within seven days and, and usually uh, turn it into cryptocurrency or gold or move it offshore. Brian, this sounds incredibly organized. Like, how many people does it take to pull something like that off? Well, it usually takes about five or six people. We we know we can, we're starting to establish you know um, um, patterns here, so we know there's 
you know, uh, between four and six sort of loosely aligned groups working in the GTA area. And one of the things that, um, you know, is notable is that the people that are actually receiving the funds are never front-facing. They they pay stand-ins to, to um, um, pose as the homeowners. And, and some of them, I think, could win an Emmy Award if they... Uh, if they cut into acting because they're so good that they fool all these professionals. Okay, and so why is it that the vast majority of these cases seem to be in that greater Toronto area? Is there something different about the rules in Ontario? Price of homes. Um, the uh, you know they 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 understand the system. They they know how it works. Um, typically, we find that there's a professional in the background, either a mortgage broker, real estate agent, sometimes lawyers even, um, because there's a lot of money at stake. You can imagine if a house is worth, uh, you know, $2.2 million. We had one recently, it was worth, worth that amount, and the, um, the uh, fraudsters sold it for one point seven. So they get a quick closing because they, they sell it slightly under market value, you know, and... Uh, um, but they're they're really good. They 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 know what they're doing. How can people fight back against this? Well, one of the, the the biggest tip I tell everybody is make sure you have title insurance because the title insurer will then take over and and work through that that process for the homeowner. Um, the difficulty is is that um, title insurance only became sort of vogue in Canada in the early two thousand the mid two thousand. So anybody that purchased a home prior to that in the 1990s or 1980s likely doesn't have title insurance. So, so they should should contact their real estate lawyer and, and purchase it because it's a one-time purchase. It's not like car insurance where you have to do it every year. And it's fairly inexpensive. So title insurance is, is, is the big thing to make sure you have. So in BC, it's, it's a little bit different, isn't it? Because like, the, doesn't the BC land title registration office here guarantee title to the property? Well, so does so does. <laughs> so does Ontario, but this is all done legally. This is all done through lawyers. So in essence, the property is transferred. So you got to understand, let's say we have people impersonating the uh, the homeowner, um, and then they get a real estate agent, list the house, sell it. The new homeowner is 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 not part of the scheme. So all of a sudden, the new homeowner thinks that he owns this home. He's paid for it. Um, and and um, um, now there's this dispute over title. So it, it takes about, sometimes it could take as much as a year to a year and a half to, to cl- clear up the mess. So who is left holding the bag then? So that person who thinks they have bought the property, they're just out that money? Um, no, because typically um, when you purchase a home now, you will have title insurance, okay? So the purchaser typically would have title insurance. The homeowner may not, but um, the law is very clear um, in, in 99.9% of the cases, the homeowner goes, the home goes back to the original homeowner. So the, you know, it, it, it eventually does because they have the legal right, but that homeowner has to prove it was a fraud. So they have to establish So, so there's a whole legal process that's, that is costly and time consuming. So all this attention that has been paid to this story in recent weeks, then, Brian, do you think, is, this, is that bringing much needed attention to this? Are people paying attention? I Personally, I think so. I think it needs attention. I think there's some, some changes that have to be made to our system here. 
um, primarily in the way that identification is verified of, of homeowners. I don't pretend to have all the answers yet, um, but there is, you know, there's going to be some work probably by the title insurers who are, are getting hit very hard here. Um, some work and some lobbying with um, with government bodies and, and just putting this under a microscope to see how we can avoid this happening. All right, Brian, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Brian King is the president and CEO of King International Advisory Group, their insurance investigators, talking about what right now looks like a mainly kind of southern Ontario thing, but boy, it's making headlines right across the country because it's so scary, this idea of your house or home being sold out from under you thanks to a combination of identity theft and, and title theft. It's just, it's a very scary situation. Ontario, they've documented several dozen cases of this happening. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This is Mornings with Simi. Is there anyone in the world who actually likes doing paperwork? I hate it. You probably hate it. It takes up a lot of time. Well, there's a new report out from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and it shows that Canadian doctors spend almost 20 million hours a year on unnecessary administrative work. Wanted to find out more about this. Ryan Malaw joins us now, a Vice President of Legislative Affairs at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. So why did, why did the CFIB look into this? So we've been asking our members, as, as we always do, about what their priorities are. And over the last, I would say, about 12 months, we've really seen healthcare skyrocket up the list of priorities. In fact, just this January when we asked, 88% of business owners said that addressing healthcare challenges should be a top priority for governments. So we were looking for sort of a, a way to approach that that was a little more in our wheelhouse. Of course, it's the first day of Red Tape Awareness Week. We are all about cutting through red tape. So we decided to take a look at what that means for physicians across the country. Okay, now this is a startlingly high number. Were you even surprised by how much paperwork doctors say they're doing? I was genuinely shocked. Um, when I When I first saw this number, I got that sort of tingling feeling in that, you know, what what is this? Uh, across Canada, 18.5 million hours on unnecessary paperwork and administrative tasks every year for doctors, the equivalent to about 55.6 million patient visits annually. So if doctors theoretically did less paperwork, they would have, what would be the benefits of that with more time? So first and foremost, it would allow for more patient visits. If you break it down on a provincial level and look at BC, BC doctors spend about 2.6 million hours on unnecessary paperwork a year. It's the equivalent of just over 8 million patient visits. If we even took out a fraction of that, reduced their paper burden by, let's say, 10%, 
you'd be freeing up about 801,000 patient visits a year. Now, we understand that not all of that time would go necessarily just to patient visits, but there are also other benefits. It would allow doctors to have a better work-life balance, spend a little bit more time with their families, and uh, eliminate the burnout that we've been seeing uh, across the country in the physician community. What kind of paperwork are we talking about here? So we, we note that there are lots of necessary things that doctors do, about 62 63%, according to them, is necessary paperwork. But the unnecessary things like uh, filling out a, a full insurance form every time one piece of information switches, um, a lot of the forms around uh, things like uh, wheelchair parking we've seen raised in uh, parts of the country where the doctors say we don't need to fill out the entire form or the form every single year. Um, just sort of those those tasks that seem like they're small things but really add up over time. Okay, so if they're saying 60% of their forms are necessary, 40% they feel like they can do better with. So that, that does free up some more time for patients. Absolutely. And that's what we're asking governments and medical associations across the country to take a look at. Let's identify where that red tape is. Let's start measuring it. Uh, and then start reducing it. We've actually seen that work happen on the other side of the country in Nova Scotia, um, whose data we're building off of. Um, They identified their paper burden and are in the midst of reducing it by 10%. Their goal is to have it done for next year, but just there, it should free up about 150,000 patient visits worth of time. How are they doing that? How are they freeing it up? So they are going through the, the paper burden, reducing forms where they were. There's, there's one form out there on the social assistance side known as the blue form um, that was several pages long. They managed to get it down to only a couple. They reduced it by their estimate by about 10 to 30 percent. And even just on that measure, um, we've already seen doctors saying, yes, we have more time because we're not filling out this form uh, as frequently or as longly. So that's the kind of thing that we're looking for all governments to see. Where is that in their provinces and then where can we start addressing it? Have you seen interest from other provinces in tackling this? Absolutely. Uh, mostly from Doctors Manitoba. That's been the, the big one who sort of spearheaded this push. But we know that work is underway in Ontario. Um, we know that there's plenty of interest in Western provinces as well. I think it's a lot of areas where conversation has been happening. I think the medical community for some time now has been looking to really uh, reduce burnout and has identified paper burden as a major contributor to that. Um, But what we're looking for now is like, let's bring those conversations out into the forefront and importantly, have a measure. Let's start taking stock of what it is we're looking at so we can track progress on reduction and get to those targets and where we want to be to free up more time for patient visits. It's fascinating. Ryan, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate your time on that. That's Ryan Malaf, who's the Vice President of Legislative Affairs at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And they say doctors need to fill out fewer forms. And if they did, that would free up more time for them, reduce fatigue and burnout, and maybe just improve the quality of patient care too. What do you think? Do your doctor fill out too many forms? If you're a doctor, tell us how bad is it when it comes to paperwork? This is Mornings with Simi. Well, New Year, new session in Parliament. It sounds like economic matters will be top of mind in Ottawa. So what is at the top of that list? Let's find out. David Aiken joins us now, our chief political correspondent for Global News. Hello, David. Hey, good morning. All right, let's talk about this. What is going to be happening in Ottawa today? Well, you're right. Economy is top of the list, but there's something else we're going to get to really before that, uh, right uh, coming up uh, next week, and that is... 
a big health care summit. You probably know that all the premiers have been uh, moaning and whining that the federal government is not giving them enough money to be able to operate our health care system, whether it's in B.C. or Ontario, Quebec, you name it. Um, this has been a consistent uh, complaint of the premiers for at least a couple of years now. And so the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, has said, okay, this, he said this last week, okay, um, let's have a summit in Ottawa. It's going to happen this time next week. All the premiers come to town. And they may not emerge with a health care deal, but I think the expectation is they're going to at least move that ball further down the road. So that's a big deal, obviously, because we've heard so many stories about how we don't have enough nurses, doctors. Some provinces are poaching from other provinces. It's a real mess. And so our premiers and prime minister are going to get to that. That's next week. But in poll after poll after poll over the last, what, three, four months, the number one issue for most Canadian households has been cost of living and inflation and you know this is a real tricky problem for any government because well when, when governments normally see a problem their answer is right throw money at it here's a spending program but it, for inflation it's not that kind of problem if the federal government decided to start sending everybody checks to help with the rising cost of groceries or rent that would be inflationary and would cause more grief than it cause more problems so uh, the prime minister last week when he met here in ottawa with his caucus um, was saying that they're well aware that this is the top priority for Canadians. They, they want to do something about it. The question is going to be, what can they do about it? That is, it's a very tricky uh, situation. Um, but, and I guarantee you, when question period gets underway today, it's normal time, 2.15 p.m. Eastern. Prime Minister is going to be in the House. Opposition leader is going to be in the House. And I'm, I bet my bottom dollar that PM is going to get asked, okay, you know what the problem is. Yeah. What are you going to do about inflation? Okay, and let's also talk about the legislation that was kind of on the agenda before they had their break uh, at, in 2022 there. Uh, they were talking about firearms legislation. Is that right? Right, and that is still before the House. And the criticism of, the, uh, of that legislation, even by some, quote, liberal allies, was that it was too broad, that it was uh, that a lot of First Nations groups, Indigenous groups, for example, said this legislation is going to impact uh, traditional hunters and things like that. So that is still before the House, um, and it looks like it will be modified <clears throat> in some shape, way, or form. The, the sort of interesting thing about the whole gun control and gun legislation thing it works for both liberals and conservatives. For conservatives, this is their hot-button fundraising issue. When they send out fundraising blast, uh, they get a lot of money for it. But it works great for the liberals, too. The liberals, uh, in the last election campaign, you talk to any liberal MP and they say, when Erin O'Toole had that gun control flip-flop in the middle of the campaign, that's when the liberal fortunes started to revive. So, um, so if this drags out, if that gun control legislation drags out, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it did, again, because for the government liberals... It's a good issue. The NDP are in a bit of a squeeze. Urban New Democrats like gun control legislation, but when you talk about rural New Democrats, I'm thinking Taylor Backrock up in northern BC, uh, that gun control legislation is is uh, they they find themselves uh, um, uh, opponents of it, right. and so it splits the NDP caucus to a degree. They're rural MPs versus urban, but again, for the Liberals, they love it. Okay, and we're also uh, still waiting for the child care bill. Well, the, the, there will be some more fine-tuning for child care. Child care is really the way the government's approached that has been these one-off or one-on-one -on -one deals with uh, each province. And, in fact, just at the end of last year, I think Karina Gould, the minister in charge of the 
childcare deals, was sort of doing some victory laps to a degree, saying it's an anniversary since this deal was struck, etc. Uh, of course, in BC, it was Premier Horgan at the time. He was then BC was the first province to strike a childcare deal with the federal government, and this it, the goal of it being is the federal government wants to have ten dollar a day childcare right across the country. All the provinces are, are, have moved down that track, and uh, and presumably the government is going to make sure that they are moving towards ten dollar a day childcare wherever you are. Okay, so the government has its agenda, but what about the opposition? What do you think they're going to be hitting on this session? Well, if, if you've paid any attention to Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader, you've heard him over and over and over repeat that he says, Canada is broken and it's all Justin Trudeau's fault. And again, if you look at the polls, um, there's a, a lot of Canadians might agree with that. The conservatives have been leading in the polls, the national polls, by two, three, four points. So, um, and, and when when Polyev says everything's broken, he's talking about inflation, uh, wait times for health care, passport uh, application times, um, you name it. But I think now a lot of swing voters who may have been persuaded or say, yes, okay, I agree, things seem to be broken in Ottawa, but what are you going to do to fix it? Um, how are you going to make it, make it better? Uh, here in Ontario, the Ontario Premier Doug Ford has announced that he wants to introduce more private sector health care delivery, albeit with the single-payer model. That's a bit controversial. Is that something that a Polyev government would, would endorse? Jagmeet Singh and the NDP, on the other hand, hate that idea. They oppose it. So, again, coming back to, uh, for the Conservative leader, what, what would you do? How would you fix inflation? How would you fix wait times? And I think that's what swing voters will be looking for if they've decided that, yes, things, things seem to be broken in Ottawa. Now they're looking for some solutions. Okay, and what about the NDP? What about their agenda? Well, this gets down to the question of are we going to have a federal election this uh, this year? I, I get asked this question by family and friends all the time, and I say the key here, the key to that question is the relationship between the NDP and the Liberals. As you probably know, Jagmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau, they struck a deal, and the essence of that deal is the Liberals get to stay in government with the support of the NDP until at least next year, so long as the NDP believe that the Liberals are making progress on on the NDP's priorities, and those would include universal pharmacare, universal dental care, um, housing right now. I mentioned that health care issue in Ontario. Jagmeet Singh doesn't like that particular uh, plan. Today he'll be calling for an emergency debate in the House of Commons on health care, and he wants Justin Trudeau to stop Doug Ford. So I'm going to be watching this relationship between Singh and Trudeau. If it uh, remains productive, we're going to get through the year, I think, without an election. But if it starts to sour, uh, watch out. All bets are off. I think most parties are, you know, uh, getting uh, sort of election footing uh, just in case. And, you know, uh, here at our bureau, we're ready to get on the election buses if we have to. But I think we might, uh, might, at least the fall, I would say, if not next spring or even next fall. Okay, we'll see what happens. David, thank you. Okay, thanks, Jimmy. Cheers. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, 
that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, in recent weeks, we've seen stories in the news about many parents who aren't happy about some of the fees that childcare providers or daycares are charging, especially since the provincial subsidy for parents was increased. Now, we also heard about how some parents say they're upset because they've been charged for being on wait lists at different daycares. Well, after doing some of those stories, I heard from our next guest who wanted to provide a different perspective on this. And after hearing it, I thought, yep, this is definitely something we should be talking about. So Leanne joins us now. Leanne's a child care provider. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Now, tell me about your daycare. How many kids do you have there? So I actually am the director and owner of a few daycares. Um, I have 44 in one, 33 in another, and we just opened one with 16. Wow. Okay. So busy times to be in that line of work, isn't it? It, it, is, a, it is a very busy time. Okay. Now you reached out to me because you said, you know what, what we're hearing in the news doesn't give us the full story. Why did you want to talk about this? Well, I heard a story that you did, I believe it was last week. And it was sort of, you know, parents are upset and I understand. So it's not that I don't understand that sort of side of it. But what had happened is things are sort of getting lumped together. So we were talking about deposits and waitlist fees and all of those things as, as sort of one fee. And they were sort of outraged that they were being charged these fees. So I wanted to break it down for you a little bit differently. And first of all, none of my centers charge a waitlist fee. And it's not because we shouldn't. The wait list takes me hours and hours to maintain. I have three different managers helping me maintain that wait list fee. A lot of them are doing it on their breaks, and we're all just doing everything we can to shuffle. Because the wait list isn't just, oh, you know, you know, Smith and, you know, all the way down the row. It is age. So if somebody comes to us and they're age 2.5, they have to be replaced with a 2.5-year-old so that they graduate with the next one at the same time. Right. So waitlisted, that's why people are charging the waitlist fee. Right. And also, I guess so, it, 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 parents put themselves on more than one waitlist, right? They do, absolutely. And I understand why. And that's why I'm choosing not to charge a waitlist fee because I know the panic that's out there and I know people are going to be on multiple waitlist fees. But what I have had to do as a business is protect myself as well. So we do charge a deposit, but we only charge the deposit once a spot is guaranteed and a start date is set. Once that has happened, that can be six months to a year in advance. So if we're going to hold a spot for you for a year, we also need that commitment that you're not putting deposits at a whole bunch of different centers, and then you'll choose, which has happened. We need that deposit. What I do is you get a deposit, and that comes off your first month's fees. If you choose never to start with me, it's a non-refundable deposit because I've held that spot for a year. And, and, and what parents tend to think is, oh, it's just me. You'll find somebody on your wait list. But what if it's not just you? What if it's seven people? Right. And then those seven spots sit empty, you know, while I go through my wait list, while people maybe give notice at other daycares they're at to move over to my daycare, they can sit up to empty for up to three months. Right, and, and for a daycare, when we're trying to maintain our staff and make sure that everybody's there, that's a huge hit. 
And that's why deposits are charged. Right. And I also know that like there's a couple of daycares out there that have been getting coverage for charging fees for things that parents didn't get charged for. Do you feel that sometimes all daycares are kind of getting lumped in with some of that negative coverage? I do. Like I, I, I fully believe like in any sector, you know, there, there's going to be people who take advantage and I, I fully believe there are some, but the, the government's been introducing that fee, that fee reduction initiative. So that's where they're paying a portion of the parents fees. And when we did that as business owners, it was a hard, you know, pill to swallow. We had to sign a contract that took away some of our power. You know, if I had to raise fees and things like that, um, I couldn't just do so. But it also holds people accountable. So one of the things about that fee initiative is we actually have to break down our fees. So we have to now say this is for rent and this is for, and we have to break down our fees and why it comes to a certain amount. So I think with some daycares, they may be taking advantage. I don't know those daycares. I know the majority of owners where we have this huge chat we all talk in. And it's the breakdown that parents are seeing, something that wasn't required before that fee initiative incentive that was given to everyone. Right. It feels like childcare now is such is so much bigger than it's ever been before, Leanne. People are talking about childcare. I mean, how many yeah. you've probably seen a lot of changes over the last couple of years, haven't you? Oh, absolutely. And to be honest, the changes are scaring me, not necessarily for myself, but just in January of twenty twenty three, I saw six daycares close in Delta. And it's just frustration. Why? People who are getting close to retirement and signing all these, you know, all this government paperwork that we sign is really time consuming on us. You know, 2020 fell and like everyone, it hit with frustrations. It hit with anger at the door. It hit with illness policies that we had to follow and parents who still had to get to work, even though we had these illness policies in place. So it's been a really hard and BC is the only province that didn't close daycares. So we were sort of open and we were the guinea pig to figure out how to make this work during a global pandemic. And people that were getting close to retiring or having children in their house and didn't, you know, and were bringing other children into care if they don't want to do it anymore. So they're just done. Do you see, like, how hard is it for you to recruit people right now to work at the daycares? So I understand that, that recruitment is a really difficult thing. Um I have to say that I probably have around a 98% retention rate. Staff that have been with me for 10, 11 years. Um, usually my st- the only reason I was hiring recently is because we expanded, but it is hard to retain. And I'm not 100% sure why. I know that ECEs, you know, are, are trying to get a, a larger salary, which they absolutely deserve. Um but I think it's a, a frustrating sector to step into right now. Yeah. What is your wait list like then? How, how great is the demand out there? My wait list is, is over 700. Wow. Yeah. And, and I'm in a small community. I'm in Ladner. I'm in a small community. And it's, it's extensive. The only reason we opened up this small little center is we found a space. So we were like, okay, let's open it. We can fit 16 in here. And we did it. But the problem is there's no spaces to open. You know, in, in certain areas, the Delta, for instance, is very restrictive of where you can open a daycare. You can't just fit one in anywhere. Commercial spaces, you can. But we know the astronomical, you know, rent of a commercial space. So that's really hard for a daycare to go into a commercial space, get in there, and keep fees low for parents. It's really hard. So, Leanne, what is it that you want people to know? With all these stories these days with daycares and childcares in the news, what do you want people to know? 
Well, there's a, a couple of things that I wanted people to know, and, and, and I've talked to different people about it. One, everybody sort of chuckles at me about it, is the fees. So people will say, oh, your fees are, my fees are pretty normal, I think, 1025 And they're like, oh, that's like, you know, a car payment. But if you break that down to the amount that we utilize daycare, which is typically 190 hours a month, if not more, it's costing parents right now $2.52 an hour. So I think when you're approaching your daycare providers and you're talking about the, how outrageous fees are and things like that, you have to think about how much you're utilizing that. And I've always sort of said in, in talking to everybody, if you were to go to your favorite coffee shop right now and you were to order something on the hour for 9.5 hours for 20 days in a month and look at your bill at the end, it's going to exceed your daycare cost. And I think the respect that we're really doing our best and that we're actually part of the solution, we're staying open, we're getting through this, is really important. And that's why you're going to start losing daycares and losing staff. It's because of that. Well, Leanne, I really appreciate you coming on to talk to us this morning. That was great. Thanks. Keep in touch. Yes, thank you so much. That is Leanne. Leanne is a child care provider in South Delta talking about the challenges that daycares face. And she feels that, yeah, okay, some, there are some fees being charged, but she said these are the reasons why they are being charged. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about the state of health care, particularly in our smaller communities around the province. The uh, health minister has been announcing some initiatives to help that. So joining us now to talk about that is BC's health minister, Adrian Dix. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Now, first off, let me ask you about the announcement that came on Friday. This is about the plan, $30 million towards Northern Island Health. What does this involve? It involves, uh, first of all, stabilizing the hours. We have three hospitals in uh, the region, in uh, Port McNeil, Port Hardy, and on Cormoran Island. So stabilizing the hours is providing incentives to more easily recruit staff, particularly uh, nurses who are needed, obviously, when you want to keep an emergency department open. It's also to expand the quality of service in the area. So that's improved transportation. That's adding a mobile MRI machine. That's other key services that bring more services to the community. It's a fairly significant drive. If you've ever driven it from uh, mm-hmm. uh, those communities, say, to Campbell River for some basic services. So what we want to do is bring more services there. And, well, we stabilize emergency services and recruit more staff. So is this an ongoing like staffing and recruitment issue? Is that, is that what's going on here? Well, uh, across the province, uh, we have recruited uh, enormous numbers of staff in the last five years. We've got 38,000 more people working in healthcare. We have a significant increase in demand as well. And because of all the respiratory illness we have, a lot more people off sick. So it's felt differently in different places. If you're a community that, say, has five doctors and two decide to retire or to move, then that's that's a significant challenge for that community. So, yes, we're working to recruit people for those communities. And we've had some success in in areas around the province. You heard a good part of last year about the issues in Clearwater. Well, we took the same kind of systematic approach in Clearwater. We haven't had closures of the emergency department there since September. Stabilized the services there, which is important. We have to, well, we deal with the situation province-wide with our health human resources plan we also have to address 
issues in communities which have uh, this is their health care and you have to stabilize them in those communities as well. Right. Now, this all started, I think, got ramped up anyway, when we heard that a, a Port Hardy doctor uh, said he was going to be the only emergency physician for that community because two of his colleagues are leaving. Like, what can you do in situations like that? How quickly can that be fixed? Well, we're responding to it. We have a program called the Practice Ready Assessment Program. You know, several months ago, we tripled the size of that program, which is very important. It's one of the real priorities of uh of Premier EB, and that program has typically allowed us to recruit people against what's called a return of service. You recruit people, and they have to provide service in a particular community for three years. Uh, and th- that kind of those PRABC uh, doctors are coming to the region, so that's one response to that. But the issue has been there for some time. We have uh, three small hospitals that are dependent on a small number of doctors and of nurses, and so. We have to take, I think, uh, in that region, some really strong action to recruit people there to ensure that there's stability there, which is important, not just for healthcare in the region, but for the whole economy of the region. So that's what we're doing. And I know that everybody looks to you to provide some of these answers, but let me ask you about the health authorities here, because are they flexible enough, like in those rural communities? We've spoken to a couple of mayors of communities like Merritt and others who say they, they sometimes have trouble getting information about what's happening in the hospitals in their community. Well, um, I think uh, you take Merritt, for example, and the work that Interior Health has done and our employees have done in that region. Just think of what's happened in that region, Merritt, through, up through Kamloops. We've had COVID-19, and it's been a significant challenge, especially in Interior Health. It's, uh, and on top of that, the overdose public health emergency, wildfires, floods. You'll recall the long-term care home in Merritt, our health care workers move people not once but twice out of those long-term care homes, in some cases as far as Vancouver, in order to continue to provide care during either flood or wildfire. And so uh, it's been an extraordinary time. And I think, you know, it's easy to, for people to push things off. Oh, it's the health authorities or there's a problem there. I think they're working very hard. We can do better and we want to respond closely uh, to the concerns that mayors have. But uh, in that region of B.C., I think our healthcare workers have done just exceptional work, and we have to do everything we can to support them. What about hiring back some of the nurses and healthcare workers who were let go as a result of the vaccine mandate? Well, uh, the issue, uh, Simi, isn't a uh, mandate. It's COVID-19 itself. There are uh, today, I think, between two and 300 people in hospital with COVID-19. The most vulnerable people in our province, we can all agree to this, are people who are in hospital. To be in an acute care hospital as an admitted patient, you've got to be very sick. And so you are the people most at risk of COVID-19. And my responsibility as health minister and Dr. Bonnie Henry's responsibility as provincial health officer, this is a provincial health order, is to ensure the safety of that group of people. It's a relatively small number of people, 99% of our healthcare workers, of course, got vaccinated plus, right? And so it's a relatively small number of people. What we need is a health human resources plan that really uh, addresses these issues in the long term. And the bigger problem in numbers is not the people who didn't comply with the vaccine mandate. Uh, And I respect everybody that that was the rule that was put in place. Um, The challenge in in our hospital system is people off sick because, of course, COVID-19 affects everyone in the community and we have a very strong uh, direction that people stay home when they're sick. 
So that's the issue. The issue is COVID-19, and this is the way, one of the ways we respond to it, to protect patients who are uh, most vulnerable and most in need. You said that what we need is a, a strong like health resources plan. Is that coming? That's here. We announced it in September, 70 actions, and you've seen some of those actions already. 128 more spaces at UBC Medical School, 602 more nursing spaces, improved pathways for internationally educated nurses, our new agreement with doctors, more than 300 new spaces for health sciences professionals. And, and all of those things are part of a broader health human resources strategy, and as well on retention, improving security across our acute care hospitals, which helps us retain healthcare workers and have them because we need, of course, better workplaces. It's a comprehensive plan and we're putting it in motion. Do you expect that a lot of these issues will be discussed, you know, when, when all the premiers head to Ottawa to talk about healthcare? I think so. You look at the agreement with, uh, with doctors, which is coming into uh, force. It was approved and ratified by the doctors on Wednesday. In the third year, that's $703 million. BC is investing in the long term in public health care. We need our federal partners to do the same, not to see their share of health care spending. And they've always had that. That's why we have Medicare in Canada, because it's a joint on spending, a joint federal-provincial project. But they do their share. And the Prime Minister and the Federal Minister of Health has indicated that they're prepared to, to do that. And so we're looking forward to that. But these are the issues, long-term care, community care, access to family doctors and nurse practitioners and others, and of course, addressing acute care and continuing to address COVID-19. These are the issues, and uh, we're looking forward to those discussions. I'm delighted they're happening. We asked for this conference for for years. Now it's here, and uh, we're going to go into it with a, the most constructive attitude possible. Well, thanks so much for your time this morning. Hey, take care, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, do you remember the story about the man who had to live in an airport in Malaysia for months as a Syrian refugee? Hassan Al-Kantar was left essentially stateless after trying to avoid compulsory military service in Syria, but he had nowhere else to go when his work visa ran out. He did a great job documenting his story on social media. That led to a resident from Whistler arranging for him to come to Canada. From Syria to Whistler, I mean, what a change, right? Well, guess what? This month, Hassan officially became a Canadian citizen. He's written a book. It's called Man at the Airport, How Social Media Saved My Life, and he joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, first of all, congratulations on becoming a Canadian citizen. How did it feel? Canada, eh? <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's overwhelming. It's still overwhelming. It's, uh, I think for me, it's more like a celebration of life or a declaration of winning, because uh, I paid the ultimate price for this moment, 15 years of separation away from my family. I have a niece and a sister-in-law I never met. I lost my father. I could not travel uh, to be with him when he needed me the most. A destroyed country. Uh, months and months of detention, interrogation, being subject to racism. So uh, it was a bittersweet. I can imagine. What what has it been like being in Canada? That must have been quite a shock to come here and start life all over again, and especially when you you know sponsored by somebody in Whistler. Uh, that's correct. Well, beginnings are hard, and uh, they become harder when we age, unfortunately. It was not an easy thing for me to come to a country with a different language, different culture, different methods and ways of uh, for living. But um, I tried to keep an open mind. I uh, adopted, and I had so many 
online courses. I started in Whistler for about six months. I learned how to ski there. I took some time off just to relax. Then I moved to Vancouver and I started working with the Canadian Red Cross. And I was there and still since uh, when the pandemic happened and now I'm working with the flood recovery. I'm, I'm speaking to you from Princeton now where we are helping the community here with the with their flood efforts recovery. Well, Hassan, it sounds like you've never stopped trying to adjust or trying to learn. You're saying that when you first got to Whistler uh, from Syria, you, you were learning how to ski? Yes, well, it's Whistler. You need to ski, otherwise you are <laughs> an outcast. <laughs> it's Whistler. They live in their own bubble. But uh, um, for me, it was it was uh, more like a fairy tale coming true. And Whistler, they, they, even here in Canada, they, it's known as they they are living in their own purple it's about the town where everyone is skiing it's a resort so uh, people they have a different atmosphere there but uh, it's for someone who's uh, eager to pay back to the community it was uh, the kind of jobs there the minimum wages uh, to build your career Uh, Whistler was not the right place I needed to move to Vancouver and uh, to start working Uh, I thought when I first come to Canada that it's going to be the end of the story, but it was the beginning of another story. And it turned out that we as a human, we never stop dreaming. And whenever we achieved one dream, we start looking into the other one. I thought that Canada is the place where I'm going to relax, establish roots, uh, get married, uh, have a family. But it turned out, especially after the pandemic, that no, I still have something to offer and uh, I'm trying to do it. And you're, trying, you're working with the Red Cross, you were saying. So here you are now continuing to give back and try to help other people. Is that important to you? Very important. Um, I, I think uh, uh, at one point in my life, I was for 15 years stateless, a man with no identity. And Canada offered me an, a new identity. It offered me a place, a home, uh, stability, permanently legal. Uh, and people welcomed me with open arms. And they gave me a chance to prove myself. Uh, so being back and being forward as well as uh, giving the example that we as newcomers or refugees, former refugees, are actually not only the people who are complaining, crying, seeking help, but we are seeking more an opportunity to prove ourselves and uh, we are skilled people, educated, and we could be an additional value to any community we live in. Why did you want to write the book, Hassan? What, what is the message? The message is, uh, I wrote the book because I thought it's time to tell the story. And uh, I was trying to speak to the Canadian and to the world, the Western world, uh, directly, without any mediator. Uh, let them hear our story from, our, from us directly, the real us to bring the gap closer between the East and the West, to build the bridge, and to show them who we really are. When people think about Syria, they are thinking now, with the stereotype, there is a pattern with the media, uh, refugee camps, and educated people, dirty uh, kids with no health care or schools. They think about the destroyed places, but Syria was never like that before. So I was trying to tell them who we really are. Now that you are a Canadian citizen, Hassan, does that mean that you can perhaps go and visit see family yes they are uh, they are not in syria that's why i can visit them uh they are in egypt and uh, the ultimate uh, dream is to bring them here to canada but that's going to take a while and a lot of effort it's almost impossible but i will keep trying um uh, now they are in egypt they are safe uh, temporarily safe so 
after 15 years, I, I want to go and visit them. And at the moment, thinking about that now, it uh, scares me a little bit. Uh, because uh, 15 years away, I don't know if I, uh, they know me anymore, if I know them, what the time has did to me to, and to, to them. I know that I have changed. Are they going to look to me differently? Who are they? It's like I'm introducing myself again to someone that I used to know, but there are a lot of changes, especially after the war and how much they sacrificed to be away from home. So I left my mother when she was uh, 50 and now she's 65. She lost a husband. She lost her son-in-law. Uh, she lost a house. Uh, what that did that? What that did to them? And so, it's. Uh, I, I, we will get there, and it will be a, a priceless moment. But it's scary as well. You know what? It's family, though, right? It's it's family. You right. must still have that connection. Are you planning this trip then? And when will you be able to go? Um, well, I need to apply for because I'm not in Vancouver, so I still need to go to Vancouver after I finish work here and then apply to my passport, and then I will start uh, planning the trip. How important was social media, Hassan, to your story? Very. It was the window who opened uh, 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 all different possibilities and options for me, but uh, it's up to us how to use it. It's just a tool. Um, it could be a, a weapon of mass destruction or could be a life savior. It's uh, I think it's the future, and people are speaking the future language right now, right uh, here. Um, I, we don't need to, to write a sign anymore and go outside to protest. People can create the wave, create the change, and lead it while they are having coffee in their living room. Uh, but we need to know how to use it, how to inspire people, and uh, how to be authentic and uh, genuine. How did you learn how to use it then? Was this something that you just thought, okay, I'm stuck here at this airport, I need to do something? It was a desperate solution for me. I tried all the uh, reasonable, logical solutions before that when I tried to call uh, uh, humanitarian organizations, NGOs, and uh, I tried to call then some embassies in, in uh, Kuala Lumpur because I was stuck in Malaysia, and then um, public figures. I tried everything and nothing worked. Then I realize that it's not Hassan, the individual who made the crime and the world is punishing him, judging him because of that crime. It's Hassan, the Syrian. And once I found that uh, answer, I decided to go to the social media and tell the story of my people, not the story of, of, of myself. That's why my first tweet ever was, what does it mean to be Syrian? So it was uh, the general story and I decided to be myself. Not to complain, not to cry. People, they have their own misery. They have their own tragedy. And I needed to catch their attention. And I thought a smile would just do that. Well, you know what? It's remarkable how far that has gotten you. So congratulations and thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me. Happy Monday.